Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. Today's episode is with Virginia Gay, who is one of my favourite people in the entire world. I don't know, I don't know her very well, um, but she's just an awesome person to hang out with and have a chat with, and I really enjoy this natter. It's very much a conversation rather than an interview, but um, uh, you've got to go and see her show. It's called Calamity Jane. If you're in Melbourne, go to the Comedy Theatre. Um, if you've seen me before in Melbourne, you've probably seen me at the Comedy Theatre because it is uh, my great home of comedy. It is one of the greatest theatres in this entire country. Uh, it is my home. It's More people have seen me at the Comedy Theatre than anywhere else. Um, and I will be doing my new show, Will Informed, at the Comedy Theatre during the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Come and see that. Tickets on sale right now. Um, and uh, it's also in Hobart at the Spiegel Tent on uh, March the 8th. So come and see that. But go and see Virginia in uh, Calamity Jane if you want to support this podcast, patreon.com slash tofop. Uh, anyway, let's just get into it today. All right. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, not recording at home today. This is uh, this is good actually in a fancy radio studio, um, not using any of the fancy radio studio equipment. In fact, <laughs> uh, we've just dismantled some of the fancy radio studio equipment to plug in my podcast equipment into it. Which and, is about uh, the size of a pack of credit cards. Just yeah. so you know. <laughs> and I'm not sure that we're going to be able to put any of it back together <laughs> afterwards, but uh, I should uh, introduce the person. Well, they, the person who just spoke should introduce themselves because that's how it starts. Uh, who are you? Hello, I'm Virginia Gay. Hello, Virginia Gay. How are you? I'm really good, Will Anderson. Does it feel uh, professional that we're in like a little radio studio doing this? Yeah, but frankly, I'm furious I don't get to meet your dogs. That was my main aim in coming on this show. I was like, it's mostly how I lure people in, to be <laughs> honest. I promise that they'll get to meet the dogs. And we've got a new cat as well now, uh, a brand new kitten uh, called it, Church. Really? And um, <gasps> take sh- me to the church. Yes. Well, you should see. Like, I mean, if you like adorable uh, animals being friendly with each other, because oh. Church is like fearless, and she has started to snuggle with the dogs. Oh so, my like, god! There's a lot of just like us, just like sitting around the house watching the cat. Snuggling oh with the God. dog. I would. I will come over and watch that. That's my full-time favourite show. Yeah, so that's why I can't do the podcast anymore at the house because people are just too distracted <laughs> by how adorable church. the animals are. Why is she called Church? She, uh, church. Uh, yeah. she, she is a she. First female uh, First female pet that we uh, – no, first female cat because okay. the theory was always in our household, uh, yeah. female dogs and male cats. Really? So we had three male cats. Sure. Uh, so there was three in total. So there was uh, our cat Tip, who was our first uh, cat. Uh, we called Tip because we got him at the rubbish tip in Barrel. There was an animal rescue at the rubbish tip. So we called him Tip. And yes. then uh, second one to come along was uh, Diego. Yeah. So Diego was already Diego's name. Amazing. Uh, now he uh, walked with a limp. Uh, was he secretly a villain? Well. Like, that's what I hear when I hear like a fantastic name and it's some sort of limp. I'm like, yeah, great. And a tiny mustache and it ties other cats to the railroad. Burmese, uh, incredibly <gasps> affectionate and manipulative. <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, often used to be uh, while you when you used to be able to use Kevin Spacey as a good reference. Well, I know, right? Um, he was very much like uh, Kaiser, Kaiser Sozo. Sozo. Yes, like yes. you always suspected that the minute that we left, the limp disappeared. The limp disappeared, <laughs> and he started running shit around yes, town. Right? Totally. Uh, to give you an insight into Diego, yes. uh, Burmese are very affectionate cats, and when we got the dogs. Uh, Diego decided he wasn't getting enough attention anymore. Oh my god! Moved across the road to the neighbours. <laughs> 
Like found a neighbour who, uh, this is absolutely true, found the neighbour who, uh, you know, uh, loved him and oh, was feeding him shit. already and just went, I live here now. Oh, my God. So it would still visit us occasionally for food and stuff, but it was like, <laughs> I'm getting full attention over here, so I'm moving in with these guys. Wow. So now he lives with them, so okay. he moved out of home. Oh, so you still see him? Uh, yeah, there's so a, we still visit. There's a visit. shared custody yes. situation going on. And then uh, we get to look after him. We babysit him if they go away now. What an honour. But we have been moved very much into that. Role. Second round. Yes. And uh, oh last but not least, there was uh, uh, God. Uh, uh, well, Ziggy. Ziggy but was uh, realistically, but we called, him, we called him God. Then. Yeah, great. Uh, we called him Ziggy originally because he had different coloured eyes. Oh, my God, so of course. Ziggy and he played guitar. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, he, yeah, God, because uh, he just uh, he was a godlike cat. Anyway. That's glorious. So, so Tip and God have both passed now. I'm Unfortunately, sorry. we lost them both in the last... Couple of years, oh, shit and so uh, Gotti, we lost about this time last year. So it, it's been about a year, and we were like, "It's time for a new cat." Now, kitten. you know, we, so we've gone with the female kitten, female rescue. Her name's Church, named after the cat in uh, Pet Cemetery, oh. the Stephen King uh, novel and uh, movie. The cat in that was called Church. I actually, I, I, it's a gap in my knowledge. I do not know Pet Cemetery, so I cannot. Yeah contribute to this conversation well also technically kind of a you know a, a movie about pets being buried and then spookily coming back to life in a pet cemetery well, it bodes so very well for church yeah. <laughs> anyway Churches. adorable is the point but that's not so this, that's great. not the point of this uh, podcast although now mm. that we've talked about it why not yeah um, do you have pets of your own no I grew up with cats grew up with cats for 15 years and I at some point will get a cat again. I don't understand dogs. I don't understand their undying devotion. I don't understand their need to be looked after. I really respect cats. Right. I respect cats with their like, hello, what do you have for me? Not enough. Goodbye. Yeah, because like they've got their own shit going on. Yeah, I love that. I really, I, as I said, I respect it. And I once looked after... I once looked after a Devon Rex mm-hmm. for three weeks, and that is one of the cats that is hypoallergenic but not completely naked, like right. a sphinx. Yeah. So a sphinx to me always looks like inappropriate. Yeah, too naked. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, I don't want to say you're a Brazilian cat. Exactly. Yeah. Babe, look after yourself. You're like, value yourself more, sphinx. You don't need to show me everything all the time, you know? <laughs> but, uh, like, right? It's got that yeah. low self esteem, like, it's Instagram nightmare. Um, but we, I looked after a Devon Rex, which has got little corrugated fur like a lamb. And that, and they have the greatest personalities. They're just weirdos and I like them. So I'm looking forward to the time when I stop living out of a suitcase for a hot second and can actually have a pet again. Well, that's that's part of it because that's you it. certainly do have a bit of the actor's life of a travelling salesperson at that's the it. moment. That's and it is yeah. very hard to, you know, have a, have a pet in that situation. It's very hard to have any responsibilities. I honestly, I love gardening and everything that I plant dies mm. everything because that you I love leave dies, it. Though. Yes. Yeah, because yeah. you leave it. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've, jumped in, we've jumped in deep. Everything that you love dies because wow. eventually you leave it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I prioritise something else over, like, <laughs> looking after the love. <laughs> Shit. No, that's fair. That's fair. That's totally fair. Uh, I am interested in the life of, uh, you know, a traveller because I'm... You've done it. I'm a road dog. And yeah, look, shit, I, yeah. And i got to be honest with you. I I am a person who feels very comfortable on the road. Like yeah. there is a part of me that when I'm home for 
a long time, I do start to get a bit itchy to go yeah, out and about. It's been part of my life for so long and a regular part of my life for so long yeah. that, um, you know, now that I'm in a situation where I'm a little bit more settled at the moment, I do find times when I'm like, oh, this yeah. is weird. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, you know, and then suddenly people are calling you to do things on the weekend because they know you're around <laughs> and stuff. Like, like there was a period in my career where I just stopped got, getting invited to things. Yeah, totally. Because people just assume you're probably not in just town. Just have no idea where you are. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I liked that. <laughs> <laughs> you like the mystery. How do you feel about the travelling life? I'm going to say for the first like nine months, I loved it. I felt so alive. I loved that idea that whichever city I went to, I landed and I made my own family where I was. After the first, after the sort of next eighteen months, I started to get a little bit whatever the opposite of wanderlust is, homelust, I suppose, where I started to go. All I want to know is where the spray and wipe is in each new home that I'm in, in each new place. Instead of going, I can make anywhere work. I just want to go. Oh, that's where the thing. That's where I keep the thing that I need on a nearly daily basis, rather than going, why under the under the window in the bathroom? I've just taken, I've spent twenty minutes looking for that. So there's, those are the things that like discombobulate me weirdly. And now, now I've just started to think maybe a couple of years somewhere would be a smart thing, which I think is I think is healthy. Having been now traveling for four years basically and having no fixed address now a couple of years where i can get all my bills and not miss a parking fine i mean i'm really pitching high with the dreams aren't i spray and wipe and paying my parking fines on time no i understand what you mean though like i mean i at one stage lost my health insurance because I was away somewhere yeah. and the health insurance company decided not to send me an email but to send some <sighs> mail to some address that I wasn't going to be at for Paper the Paper mail. So old school, ain't it? And it was one of those things where I'm just going, oh, hang on, I don't have health insurance now. And then I tried to rejoin and they made me like, you know, go through the waiting period that you have to go through no. for these things. I'm like, hang on, I've been with you guys for 15 years no. and you've cut me off <laughs> because I was away. Yeah. You know, and you sent me a letter. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure we're not Amish anymore. Right. You know? Right. I know. Letters uh, are gone. Letters so are dead. you yeah. do lose a little of your social circle and yeah. those regular things. I joked about it a little bit, mm. you know, before, but there is a point, you know, in the entertainer's life, particularly because we tend to work nights and weekends. You know, you've been doing, you know, a very it's successful very stage show and stuff. People yeah. have their birthday parties and weddings and yeah. all these sort of things at the time that, yeah. you know, perhaps you're not going to be in town or you're going to be on stage, you know, doing it's your job. Right. It's Do you selfish of them, really. Yeah, yeah. well, exactly. Yeah. Thoughtless <laughs> and selfish to not consider my needs first. Yes. Yeah. Why can't, yeah, why can't you have your birthday on a Monday night when Monday I'm available? Night. The classic Monday night huge celebration. Yeah. What's wrong with a Wednesday afternoon for a wedding? <laughs> Actually, not Wednesday. I got in a matinee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah totally. Thursday afternoon. Yeah, I can do Sunday, but yeah. only after 8.30 and then really plough on till morning. Everybody else cool with that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so where do you... Do you uh, make an effort to keep that, you know, social aspect up? Mm. Do you have a... A group of close friends do your cast members and you know people that you're working with on the show you know end up filling that role how does that work yeah you always make a I, I think you would know this too you always make a family wherever you go with whoever you're working with and that as I get older and older the more I realize that 
the the quality of art you make is obviously very important to the outside world, but for me the process of making art is the thing that you have to turn up and do every day. So it's more and more important to me that the people that I make that art with are people who I love and respect. You know, there's this tra- there's this sort of um, yeah, there's this tradition like you have to suffer for your art and you have to you know, and people can be tyrants and bullies and nightmares and. L- I really think the tide is changing on that at the moment and that everybody is saying, you know what, you don't have to be an arsehole and if you are going to be an arsehole, there are 10 people standing behind you who are not arseholes, who are as talented as you, will get them in instead. It, so, it, that does seem, I mean, it's, it's so funny because, you know, I often think that, and this is, you know, we're having a conversation at the moment about a whole bunch of things, yeah, right? Yeah. And it's a wake-up call for a whole bunch of, you know, people for a whole bunch of different reasons. It's an amazing time at the moment. It really is. Yeah. But also, you know, in our particular respective, you know, industries, yeah. you know, there is a touch of us suddenly realising that all these things that we accepted as being part of the artist process yes, or the artist journey or part of what it was to be you know like you know that to be a great writer you had to drink yourself into oblivion exactly. to be a great artist you had to be dismissive and rude and horrible Absolutely. to everybody who and was, a huge misogynist you know, and always sleeping with like 16 people at the same time right yeah. all these things were raised as being part of the culture and when people talk about these ideas of like you know you know toxic masculinity and stuff i often look back at these things and go i wish that i were raised in a different environment because there are things that I regret from earlier on in my Mm. career not well I mean A I regret because of the way that I behaved but B I regret because I was behaving that way not even because I wanted to behave that way because we were I was behaving that way because I looked around at the people that I admired and you looked around at the stories that were being told about your industry and the people within your industry and they were the stories that were told and they were the stories that were celebrated and they were the personalities that were celebrated so you were like well if I want to be this then I have to be like that yeah an and, absolute nightmare. <laughs> and I hate that I got told that. Yeah. And I hate that there were some of the ways that I behaved yeah. because I thought that was the way you were meant to behave. And that is not to, by the way, uh, excuse myself of no, no, any blame for that. Yeah. I just wish that, you know, I think these are good conversations yeah. because I do think that so much of that stuff is complete and utter bullshit. Yes, I absolutely agree. And I think the amazing, the thing about the, cha- that, the change that is happening at the moment So I think all the time about the way that I am so impressed by people who are who are political voices and who fight and fight and fight for equality and who are are dogged and amazing and who, you know, combat people on Twitter and say, I will not accept this. I I want more of that in my soul, but I know that I myself personally, I am averse to conflict and I when I when I get touched by it, I shut up like a little clam, you know, I'm no good to anybody. I often think about how appalling I would be on Q&A. Like I often think about it. And I think people would be like, you'll be great. And I'd just be like, oh, oh God, that's, oh, did, oh no, why? Terrible. But I think the way that change works for me is that it's a two-pincered attack, a two-pronged attack. And in one side, there are people who are going, we cannot have this anymore. We must not have this. This is intolerable. This is not... This and fighting and fighting and fighting and using their words in that way. And the other side of it is the side that I am best at, which is to show 
you a great version of how it can be. So yes, leading by example, but also my power as um, and my position of privilege as a storyteller is to go, I'm just going to show you this world. And it's non-threatening. And it's in fact even pretty attractive because we're all pretty funny over here. We're all like, but look at the diversity that we're looking at here. Look at the gender fluidity that we're looking at here. And that's the stuff that I feel like I'm most proud about with Calamity particularly, is that it's taking a story that invites in people who go, isn't it great? Calamity was a tomboy and then she put on a dress and everybody liked her. Goodbye. And we're saying, okay, you can't come and see this story. But at every single point, we will tease that out and we will say, this is not the story we're telling. What we're showing you is a story of an iconoclastic woman who, who accepts no gender norms at any time. And every single person throughout the show learns to love her for who she is, including herself, with actually growth but no significant change. It's not a Cinderella story when we tell it. So that's what I think my, my skill is in this, in this way that we're going forward in the world, is just to always be saying, hey, it's pretty green over here, these pastures. Look, this grass is delicious. Do you want to try some? It's cool if you don't want to. But it's just, it's over here. I mean, it's yummy. You want some? That's it. I love it. Because uh, to me, I, I absolutely agree with you in the way that all these things are going to take multifaceted approaches. Yeah. And, you know, I am not a person who, you know, believes in the sort of firm opinion because a lot of the time, and, you know, I've been asked to do Q&A and I've been asked to host Q&A and I've said no to both because... can you'd be a great host. Uh, like, not just, not because I don't think you'd be a great guest, but there's something about hosting that is about facilitating ideas that... Yes, but I, I think on a show like that, I'd be too... Because I'm too easily swayed by people's ideas. I'd be like, you know what? That is a good point. And then somebody else would be like, well, that's a ridiculous point. And I'd be like, you know what? You're this person right. also makes some great points. Oh, God, you know, you were making terrible points until you talk again. And then I'll be convinced by you again. But also, I want to see the best in people. You yes. Know, uh, I often, you know, not often, I sometimes get some feedback, you know, about this podcast that I don't ask people enough, like hard questions or provocative questions or whatever, but it's not what, what I want to do. There are podcasts out there where people do that. Yeah. There are podcasts out there that are based on research and that, that are based on this idea that they're going to, you know, ask these tricky questions or yeah. put someone in a gotcha moment or whatever. That's yeah. just not what this is. Yeah, totally. I like the idea that. Um, also, I kind of feel like as, you know, as the person mm-hmm. who I, looks like the problem, that's, you know, <laughs> let's be honest, you know, in the world that we're in at the moment, yeah. you know, the white, straight, mid-40s, you know, successful, you know, rich by world comparisons, yeah. you know, by yeah. most of the population comparisons, yeah. not by... You know, but, <laughs> not, but yeah, yeah. not by actual... Com- you know, <laughs> yes, well, you know, know what I mean. I know what I mean. But if I'm being honest, yeah. I am... So... I don't need to be the person telling anybody about what they should be doing or how things should be. Yeah, you know, I think though that perhaps, like you were saying, mm. is I love that there are those voices. Yes, I I'm absolutely so grateful for them. Yeah, and I am grateful for them. And that's why when you know somebody when there's a Clem Ford or when there's oh, one of these so people good. who yes. is 
you know, yeah. as out there and provocative and intentionally provocative. Yeah. I applaud that. Yeah. Even if sometimes I feel, you know, provoked by it, or even if sometimes it's like not the way that I would go about that. Yeah. I'm like, it's great. Yeah. I love that those people exist. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that is absolutely brilliant. And yeah. on all sides of the spectrum. I yeah. like a provocateur and I think there's a really important role for them in, you know, society. Yeah. It's just not my way. Yeah, right? totally. Like totally. my way is how how can I help in this situation? Yeah. Maybe Sometimes when people feel like, you know, this we need to tear this down, yeah. all they concentrate on is what we'll lose from that, as opposed to saying, no, 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 show people that yes. look at how good this is. Yeah, yeah. Right? Value adding. Yeah. Yes, yes. No, oh, you're not going to lose anything from yeah. more women being on stage. You're not yeah. going to lose anything from more queer people or yeah. you know, gender diverse people, you know, having these opportunities. Yeah. We're going to gain things from it. Yeah. You know, we're going to be smarter. Yeah. I'm going to understand the world more. Um, there's a great, I've mentioned it on this podcast before, but there's a great football podcast called uh, The Outer Sanctum. I was listening to your Hannah Maltzi interview just this morning. Right. So I spoke about the thing that I loved about that was yeah. hearing that particular group of women talk about a game I had been raised yeah. with gave me a new level yeah. of interest in the game than I had already had. Yes. It adds... To, it's not taking anything away from my experience. Yes. It is adding to my yes, experience. exactly. And so I just identify with what you say because yeah. I think all of those things are valid ways to approach it. Absolutely. So, which brings me to, oh, do you want another glass of water? Should I get you another glass of water? I mean, I would you? love another yeah, glass of water. I mean, we've got lots of chatting to go and uh, you've already... very salty you've quiche. Already finished your, uh, you've already finished your water. So I'll pause for a second and I'll uh, get some more water. And we're back, and I uh, couldn't find any jugs, but um, uh, I do have. Uh, you've got two glasses of water oh in God. front of you. So I feel so wet. I'm we'll so thrilled. We Sorry, what? <laughs> Wait, be... what? Wait. Good for the promo. <laughs> if we did promos, <laughs> but it would be good for the promo. <laughs> Use that out of context. Mm-hmm. That'll be my new uh, alarm for the morning now. <laughs> <laughs> Just wake up to that in the morning. <laughs> but with the autocorrect afterwards? Yeah. Wait, what? What? Wait, oh, what? God. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, which is how I feel when I wake up in the morning. So that would be Hells appropriate. Yeah. Uh, Virginia Gay, uh, do you have a mm. philosophy? Yeah, I have found in my life I've had various philosophies that I, not unlike you were just saying, I believed intensively for a short period of time. And then I found myself believing the sort of equal and opposite reaction. Not as extreme as, you know, going from sort of small L liberal to bigger liberal or anything like that but to go I went through a stage where every year would have a theme so instead of a resolution I would have a theme for the year not I suppose unlike the way those like multi-million dollar tech giants would wear like a grey t-shirt every day because it would reduce the number of decisions they'd have to make I'd go if I've got a theme for the year then I'll just work within this theme by the way uh, everybody who works with me knows that I subscribe to the uh, billionaire tech giant uh, theme of dressing it's and true that you, I've only seen you in this shirt yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean I wear so this is the third day of this week and I have worn the exact same thing every day I've gotten to the stage now where I wear a white t-shirt and a brightly patterned skirt and that's it yeah. that's it yeah. I'm fine with it yeah, it's I'm great. Done. It suits us. That's right. We're done. Yeah. I've locked in this look. Yeah, totally. You're going to see me in it every day. Totally. It's something you can trust. I like it. Yeah. You like it. Mate, Let's have a great day. The Wheat Bix have the same packet, so you can find the Wheat Bix. <laughs> I am Wheat Bix. <laughs> oh, Will Anderson. Good branding. Real good. <laughs> yeah. um, so, my theme for one year when I was feeling very unhappy in myself and very kind of 
trapped and and filled with a lot of residual self-dislike was to say yes to everything and work it out later. Mm -hmm. So that was a a time where I really properly said yes to things that I had no idea I could do. I did late night shows. I did shows that finished after midnight and I was still shooting television during the day. I did everything. And what did you learn from that? I learned, listen, I learned quite exactly how you can burn out a human being. But I also learned, I learned an extraordinary series of skill sets that I didn't know that I had. I learned, I was Ali McGregor's like um, filthy French maid for her variety night for one comedy festival. And so the level of audience interaction that that afforded me every night with 20 minutes of pre-show of me talking to every single audience member in character and flirting and making them feel happy and being intentionally weird was so helpful to I mean it's now helpful to sort of every job that I've ever done because it makes you fearless in a way that if you've just done television and fourth wall presentation acting you you would never know how incredibly terrifying that is and then once you've done it for long enough how actually it's just intimate and it's about interpersonal relationships which is, which is what we're all doing really um, but then the next year the theme for the year was prioritizing mental health over the brief high of applause which is like a really fancy way of saying no to things and learning to say no and saying, actually, I need time for myself. And I wouldn't have made that level of change and, and travel so quickly if I hadn't so intensively said yes to everything for so long and then gone, okay, I thought that might make me happy. Instead, what I've done is learn a lot. It didn't make me happy. So now let's try saying no to things and knowing a bit more about what I can do and what I can do easily and joyfully and then making space for other kinds of nourishing things. So you essentially Marie Kondo'd your career. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Before she was a thing. That's right. I'm ahead of the curve, babes. Every time I hear her name, all I want to say, tell me when will you be mine? Tell me Kondo, Kondo, Kondo. That's all I do. Uh, you... It's interesting to me that you talk about you know, those learned skills of mm. audience interaction, mm. um, you know, uh, because you've always struck me in the time that I've known you, and yeah. I haven't known you forever, but in the time that we've kn- known each other, that um, you 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 feel like a person who naturally carries that energy with you. Mm. Like you feel mm. like a very open person. You feel like a very friendly person. You feel like a person who easily, I've seen you in various different guises and in various different, you know, environments and radio show and working with different personalities and yeah. and whatever and, and seeing you so easily adapt to those scenarios. Was that something that you've had to That's learn nice. to do or is that something that has been sort of part of your personality throughout your life? Yeah, I feel like I've learned to do that because I feel like for a lot of my a lot of my 20s, I was a, I was a um, what's the word? Um, <laughs> I was like a teacher's pet, goody two-shoes teenager and then daughter of two teachers. That's how you get it. And then Well, my, one way or the other, I'd imagine. Exactly, right? right? Either rebel or conform. Yeah. Um, but And then my 20s were my kind of rebellious time and my testing my own boundaries time. So in that time, I, le- I learnt a lot about I got in my own way a lot, if that makes sense. As I mentioned, the sort of level of self-disgust I had for myself and how that just stopped me from basically from talking to anybody openly or kind. I'd always go for a self-disparaging punchline rather than actually investing in the conversation. So, So, yeah. 
you know, I mean, and again, you know, the the idea of this podcast is, mm. you know, talk about as much or a little as you mm. feel comfortable about. But when you say your know, level of self-disgust, can, yeah. you, can you talk about that a little bit more, yeah. what that actually means? Yeah. I mean, it, it's by the great wide world, it's, it's like, it's a very privileged level of self-disgust. It's not like, it's not violently self-destructive, it, although it was in a way, but it was about me feeling my entire life like I was too much, too big. I was five foot eleven at like thirteen, and I had this big, unusual face. And I always used to joke I looked like Mount Rushmore, you know. Like, and when you grow up around beautiful, beautiful young people, I suppose I went to a performing arts high school too, and you know, was never Juliet, always the nurse. You right. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and when you're little, all yeah. you want to be is Juliet. Yeah. All you want to be is to be the main person in the story. And I, since I was constantly cast as the wacky best friend and the maiden aunt and the poorly adapted male role, mm. I started to cast myself like that in my life. Yeah. So it was to do with just never feeling pretty enough or little enough or lovely enough and what I have come to realise is that all that stuff that made me different, I mean I think of one of the things that <laughs> it's not quite a philosophy to live by but one of the things that I have joyed in learning in this life is don't peak in high school Right. in fact use, use that time because it makes you so much more interesting later on you know what I mean, like those mid 30s for people who were the weirdo outsiders, we're the ones making the work now. We're the ones going, you know what is an interesting story? The story of an outsider because everybody feels like an outsider. So let's use that lens to make the world, to see it from a beautiful different angle. So I, where was I going with that? I don't know. Well, no, you were talking about how you took that level of, you know, sort of, I guess, feeling like the, you know, uh, the poorly translated male role <laughs> yes. into your yes. real life for yes. a while. Yes, I made, it, I made it into my real life and I thought I was unlovable and I thought I was not worth anybody's affection. And instead, what I have come to realise as I entered into my 30s, and my God, if you are in your 20s now and you're thinking, what the fuck is this world? Can I recommend your 30s? Mm. Your 30s are fucking terrific. They're so great. Um, so what was the difference? The difference was I got out of my own way. I started to realise that it served no one to be this self-hating. That in fact, actually, everybody got a better deal if I started to, instead of my default being self-deprecating dislike, my default became forward-footed enthusiasm. And I've realized that actually kind of what I feel like I am in my entire soul is like a really enthusiastic five-year-old. I feel like I'm the kind of, and I was pretending for 15 years to be like a cool, um, you know, Gen X and 90s, like whatever, slacker bitch. And instead, I'm just a person who's like, oh my God, did you really? And then what happened? Oh my God, show me exactly what that looked like. Yes, brilliant. Let us spin and dance in the street. And the more I sort of shed that outer level of what I thought I should sound like and just went, actually, I have a huge enthusiasm for living and for other people and the way they see the world, the better it was for everybody, including me. How, how I'm very interested because I... Have, I have really probably only known that version of you. <laughs> and for me, it Great. feels like it, 
it sits so naturally on you yeah. that it's hard to even imagine the previous version. Oh, that's actually really very nice. That's lovely. But I am interested in because it doesn't seem like now that I see the finished product. Yeah, you know, and now that you know, you can see how successful this has been for you also because like you know you are doing all this amazing work and all this amazing work you know like a lot of the stories you're telling this like Calamity Jane show Mm -hmm. I mean you know you can really you can see the progression from you know the characters that you were playing and what you were to you know finding you know this woman's story and yeah how you can tell this in this interesting way that is connecting with so many people yeah but I, I am interested still in how you go from one to the other. Yeah. Like, and do you have memories of, you know, was it just a conscious choice? How did people react to that when you first started? Because partly also sometimes it can be that that's how your friends expect you to be. Yes, totally. And you get trapped in being yeah. what the rest of your social group yeah, or your sardonic world. sardonic sidekick. Yeah, yeah. You're this person. And yeah. if you want to be more than that, yeah. or if you want to be something different to that, it makes other people around you feel uncomfortable, uncomfortable. as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the, the way it changed was in the way that we were just talking about before. I saw an example of myself. I saw an, an example of who I could be, who I thought I was. And I saw how it made other people uncomfortable that they couldn't quite engage with it and I saw an example of the kind of person I wanted to be and that is I know very specifically that's my friend Mel Vallejo who I met doing Winners and Losers and I saw her I can't hear her name without saying Mel Mel Vallejo Mel Mel Vallejo Vallejo. (laughs) that's her theme song it's true we sing it every time we see her (laughs) she's so great but she yeah to see by example, to see the joy that she put into the world and the way that she existed on set. You know, I think Winners and Losers was a really good example too of like you get this story that you're told, which is, oh, four women, you must all hate each other and there must be an enormous amount of competition and there must be nastiness there. And instead what I learnt was that if you are the top of the hierarchy as we sort of were in that show you get to set the tone and you can set the tone to be toxic absolutely you can and I've worked in situations where that has been the case but if you get the chance to choose you can set the tone as joyful and then you see this trickle down you see this incredible trickle down of people laughing as they go about the job encountering difficulties and going Instead of going, why, why won't you see my vision going? I mean, it's just an idea. What do you think about that? Because I think the positives are this and, yeah, shall we, shall we give it a go? And see how incredibly um, effective that is to, to everybody's day <laughs> and to the art that you make. So I reckon, yes, I saw it in Mel Vallejo. And uh, I thought, I'm going to consciously try and be like her. Uh, do, you, uh, do you look at people as role models in that way? Like, uh, do yes. you look, you know, at people and go, oh, I admire this person. I'd like to, you know, find out what their story is, what their perspective is. Is, is Do those sort of things guide you in your life? I honestly think, I think I've seen so, I th- in the last like year, I think I've seen like five women, maybe the last two years, where I've gone, you're it. You're the kind of enthusiastic, kind, joyful creature. Not um, not naive, like discerning, which is a really important detail, but loving. 
And I see it in Jennifer Byrne. I see it in Annabelle Crabb. I see it in Lee Sales. I see it in Marie Cardi. I see it in Julia Zamiro. And I actually think that's an extraordinary panel play of great women working joyfully in the world. But in no way, I think one, one of the things that I had to learn too was um, I got a poster on my wall that says work hard and be nice to people. And that, I, coming back around to your question about a philosophy, is probably the closest thing that I have to a philosophy that has lasted the years. But the double-edged sword to that too is that as women we get taught niceness and likability is more important than standing up for what you believe in and making sure that your voice is heard and all of that stuff. So I learnt be nice. I, be, be, I, I learnt... Be loving and enthusiastic and see what a positive effect that has. But I also then had to learn that doesn't make me silent on the things that matter to me. And that means that there is a way of being a leader, which is not, um, which is not you know, uh, polemical because I can't do that, but w- which is a way of going like, I've had a thought we should all maybe like walk over here. Would anybody else like to walk over here? What a fascinating idea. Let's talk about why you wanted to walk over here. This is a... So uh, being a leader, especially now that I make my own work and I, uh, I make more things, I think it's really important to think about the kind of leader that you are in a room and the kind of way that you make sure the things that, you are, that are important to you are maintained without being a walkover but also without making anybody else feel small. It's it's really interesting to me. I connect with that a, a lot because uh, I had to make a transition in particularly when we were doing Gruen because when yeah. I first started doing that show, you know, uh, I was the host of the show and one of the kind of creative contributors to the show. But yeah. there were executive producers on that show, Andrew Denton and John Casimer and, you know, Anita Jacoby and all brilliant people in their own right. Yeah. We were in a situation where sometimes that relationship would be confrontational because yeah. it's the nature of, you know, of course. a room full of ideas and because they're the bosses and sometimes on you know, on behalf of the show you you're making different you know decisions to the bosses. Yeah. Now then early on in that process, you know, whatever it was, five years in or whatever, because um, it's been quite a while now that yeah, you know, I've been in charge of that. But um yes. I had to make the transition to being an executive producer myself yeah. in that way when they, you know, left the show and moved on. And and, you know, got some good advice at the time to make sure that I didn't take, you know, the attitude of being the host of the show and the attitude I had to the executive producers into being, that, you know, that yes. idea that somebody's saying, remember you're the boss now. Yeah. Remember that when you're in the room, what you say isn't just being viewed through the prism of, you know, you're just another voice in the room. Yeah. You're suddenly the boss and the way that you behave and the way that you behave to other people and the way that you... Um, you know, make sure that everybody's heard or the yeah. way that you make sure that, you know, people aren't cut off or that, you know, ideas are being contributed from, you know... A variety of sources, variety of yes. sources or that if someone is by the... It, the, the loudest voices in the room aren't the necessarily the voices that are listened to the most yeah. and all these things that you suddenly have to think about. Yeah. It is a very different headspace. Yeah. And so I'm interested in asking you about that mm. when you are making your own work. Yeah, because you it, it comes with two things. It all is relying on you a bit, <laughs> so you've got absolutely much more pressure than yeah. you know. Suddenly, I'm EPing a show and hosting it. Yeah. You know, suddenly you're creating a show, you're starring in a show, yeah. but you're also the sort of you know leader of all these other people as yeah. well. 
how do you manage to balance you know what you need as a performer versus yes. what you need as a creator versus what you need as a a team leader and, and bring all those things together. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's so weird about our job that we require a certain – you have to have the right amount of ego to think even in your in your heart of heart, it's right when this spotlight is on me, I'm not going to hide from it. In fact, I'm going to open myself up oh, yeah. to it. No, I mean, they're very arrogant. I mean, you're currently doing a very successful run at the comedy theatre. I, I do the comedy theatre a lot. And the idea that you're you, – I mean – you could be the most without ego person in the world, but if you're just looking at it in a really subject, uh, sorry, yeah. objective way, of course you have an ego. You believe that a thousand people are going to pay sixty bucks a head, <laughs> get a babysitter, yeah, totally, you know what I mean? Totally. Have a night off, Ubers, to come and see you, mate, bloody dumplings, dance, yeah, right? totally. <laughs> Totally. Let's put dance in inverted commas there too. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, no, I agree. I think it's so extraordinary. You've got to find that balancing point because y- y- that you have to have enough ego to, when you have eyes on you, not shrink from it, but too much ego and you immediately become an arsehole and blind to the needs of others. And then you become, you know, one of the great failure stories of this of this world and there are thousands of so people how who- do you know when you are on the right side of that do you have people who let you know that do you have a good level of self-awareness when you've you know you're you're being too self-involved or you've you know, pushed something too far yeah. like where does that feedback come from yeah i feel like i have a pretty good level of self-awareness i could feel the shift in the room when i've labored a point too much <laughs> When people stop making eye contact and I go, okay, okay, you know what? I can read this. All right, thank you. But I always feel like a room works best when there's lots of laughter, even in the face of great um, discussions that are perhaps not at, really at loggerheads. If we can keep on talking about the impossibility of what I've just offered or what you're asking me to do, but we can laugh around it, it's like it's like social lubricant that it just means that actually suddenly you find yourself slipping into places where you go, oh, this is actually possible now. Oh, I'll give it a go. Oh, well, I'll try it tonight in front of an audience. And if it fails, it fails. That's fine. I How think, are you at receiving feedback? I, I generally, I think I'm pretty good. I actually, it's amazing that you ask. I got a note last night that I, from my our wonderful director, who we had just had like a terrific, terrific relationship and this show could not have been made without him he's wonderful I got a note last night that I disagreed with and I have been thinking about it (laughs) for about 12 hours and I'm like why why has that why has that become such a burr in my soul and I have really tried to think that out and go what he's asking is something which what he's asking me to drop is something which for me has become integral to the character and it might not feel like that to the outside but I've created a wall around that which is which is I've in fact created like struts through that moment which are supporting other moments and I thought that's actually really interesting to think about why I was so unwilling to take that note it's because I've given that moment a different meaning and import in the show and I need it to get somewhere else so I think once I once I did that thinking, I'm actually going to call him today and apologise and go, okay, great, let's let's talk about and then for me to raise why I think that's important and perhaps we can find a compromise or I can say I need I need that moment somewhere else so that I can feel like I can get on forward with the it's show. So, so often, isn't it, that we 
treat the symptom and and not the cause. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, in an artistic sense, but it can be in a societal sense. You know, like you, you know, somebody can be, uh, you oh, know, like so the true. the symptom can be racism, but yeah. the the cause of their problem is that they feel disassociated from the political process, or they yeah. feel that you know everybody's doing better than them, and they've yeah, been told yeah. by the mainstream media that the reason is that you know someone's coming here on a boat to take their job or whatever, exactly. and. The symptom is the racism yeah. or the thing that appears to be racist, but the cause is something actually much deeper or much different. And I, I like that sort of level of feedback because often it, there's nothing wrong with going, no, 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 I, I've examined this. Yeah. I'm not just reacting, I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> you know, you've made me examine why it's there. Yeah. And I've gone back and I've gone, okay, I know why it's there and I know that it needs to be there for this reason. Yeah. Can I get that from something else in the show? Sure. Yeah. Is there another way that we can, if this is, you know, the support structure that's holding this roof up, right? (laughs) Can we bring in another, can we raise that thing up there and that'll hold the roof up and that'll do the same job? Exactly. Or do we need this just so the whole thing doesn't collapse? Yeah. And we're just going to have to kind of, you know, put up with the fact that there's a big ugly bar in the middle of the room because it's holding up the roof. Yes. And I'm sorry, I know it's a bit of an eyesore, yeah. but if we take it out, the roof falls down. Mate, so, it's, it's weight-bearing. Yeah. It's weight-bearing, mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it is that. And yeah. being challenged on that in a productive way, yeah. in a way that allows you to go away and examine it and have a deeper understanding of why you have it there. Yeah. I mean, I think so often in life that our immediate um, response to feedback and that's yeah. why I asked really I yeah. guess is that to immediately feel insulted or shut down or criticized in a yeah. way that makes you go no I'm yeah. right and you're wrong totally whereas one of the great things that we could do in our society I think if we are to move forward is to have that capacity to you know talk to each other about things that aren't working yeah and then take the time to get to the like if this Root person course. has this you know fast held belief yeah don't just judge them yeah. on the surface of what their belief is but talk to them for long enough to get to a real understanding of why they believe totally that thing. totally and then once you understand them and once you understand what their fear is or what their you know concern is or whatever then maybe you can actually help deal with that fear or that concern totally. rather than the symptom totally and the truth is that in in this ecological metaphor unless you actually address the root cause the symptom is going to keep on popping up. Yeah. You know, so we're going to keep on getting racism and closed-mindedness and we're going to keep on getting me not being able to take the note because I haven't dealt with why I think it's there in the first place. So, the, you know, we, you have to do that thinking. And I, I mean, God, if we don't do that thinking ourselves, it's kind of difficult to do that thinking for other people. I think that's one of the other things that I've learned from life. You can offer people different templates of thinking. You can offer people different ways of thinking, but you cannot change them. You cannot force them to think your way. All I can do is show you how I got here and why I think it's great over here. (laughs) That's all. And if you want to come, I'd love you to, but I can't make you. So uh, that's really interesting to me because there are times where as a leader in the Mm. way that you are, you do have to make – well, of course you don't have to make them, but in the practical sense that you can't forever sit around and have a conversation about things. Yeah. That's true. Um, you know, one of the ways we you know, run the meetings at Gruen is that I like the, the idea that everybody has their say. But, of course, when everybody's having their say, that's going to mean that there's a whole bunch of people who kind of disagree at the end of the day. Yeah. And 
eventually someone needs to make a call. Yeah. And it is my job to make that call. So yes. I'll take it all on board, but eventually then I have to go, and now this is what we yeah. are going to do. And that- because somebody has to say, and now this is what we are going to do. Yeah. So how good are you at saying, and now this is what we are going to do? Yes, I think I'd like to be better. At- There's something about what you said too, which is about like you as the brand of Gruen. So of course, if, if it's so identifiable as you, you've made this thing, you've built it up then of course it needs to be your voice in the end. In this show, in Calamity, I you know, I feel like I am one of the leaders, but I also think Richard Carroll is our director, so I will find a way to make that note work because also I'm, you know, I'm in it. I'm not seeing it from the outside. You don't get that benefit of actually seeing the show as we do when we make television where you look back at things and go... Oh yeah, I see that that was that was a bold choice that didn't work or I see that that was a clunky episode. It didn't quite hang together in the way that I'd like. You don't get, oh, my God, I directed my first film this time last year for Tropfest. Sitting in the editing suite is the greatest power I have ever known, ever known. The idea that I can take everything that everybody has given to me and make the short film again. So I wrote the script. I directed it. But then sitting in the editing suite with all of the raw materials, that to me, I was like, oh, this is the, this is the next step of power and storytelling. Extraordinary, like power that I didn't understand because, of course, when you're an actor, you do the stuff and then you give it off to 20, 50 post-production people and they put music under it and they choose which camera angles and they choose which takes and they choose the one with the tear but you stumbled on the line or they choose the, you know, and you're like, ah, not that one. But for me, being the person who got to shape that story again in the editing suite with an incredible editor, that was thrilling to me. How are you at watching yourself back? (laughs) Are you a person who, you know... uh has done that throughout your career are you a person who go i've done this performance if you yeah particularly if it's television or film something that you can sit down and watch back yeah uh, are you a person who will go through that process and sit down and watch it back and learn from that yeah it was the only way i learned i, I got all saints straight out of drama school and we had done a six-week um screen acting course so it was the only way i learned to be on screen was that every week i got this extraordinary opportunity to watch me and to be on set with people as the camera was on them and go, oh, that's what it looks like when you're in the room with them. Incredible. That's, it was like masterclass after masterclass after masterclass of watching people interact with the camera. So I did a lot of watching during All Saints. I think it's indicative too of well, like when I was not in like a great space, I really disliked watching myself. Um, and now I think I've gotten to a space where which is kind of working back around to what I was saying before, where I've recognised that the things that made me different in high school, the things that, you know, in high school, all you want to do is just be the same as everyone else and you just want to be liked by everybody. The things that made me different, which was my height, my magnificent jaw, (laughs) my deep voice, all of those things have now become the things that have made me marketable. So all of they have, they have actual monetary gain this this difference, this uniqueness. So I'm better at watching myself on television now because instead of going, oh, God, why isn't my nose smaller? Oh, my God, your chin. Oh, mm. d- never turn that way. Yeah. I go, 
Oh, sweet money maker. <laughs> I go, come here, Rushmore. Give me them dollars. <laughs> I know what I'll be resting that chin on. A huge you- pile of cash. <laughs> I find myself uh, repulsive to watch. And really? So I can't do it. I, Will Anderson, uh, no. Yeah, so I, I'm one of those people who... I made myself a pledge this year that I'm going to listen back to... Because I'm looking... My stand-up in particular is the thing that, I mean, it's my great passion, my stand-up, and, you know, it's really all that, um, you know, if I talk about things that I absolutely love to do, I have complicated relationships with every other thing that I do. Television, I don't really love making, to be honest. I like having made the show that we make, and I'm very proud of it, but we do 10 episodes about every... 12 to 18 months and that's well and truly enough, enough television for, for me um, in fact that's a little bit more than I would actually prefer I'd like to do about 10 episodes every two years would be the actual right amount but well how fascinating um, no, and radio I have a very complicated uh, relationship with um, I have written books but I don't enjoy writing but no. I, I love doing stand up it makes me happy and sad but I, I love it and <laughs> I would love sad. and I would love to uh, just get better at it yeah, if, I, right. if I could just get better at stand-up for my entire career, mm. I think that at the end of my career, that would be enough for me. I, that would be the thing that makes me happy. Yeah. And yet, and, and funnily enough, the opposite side of that is it, I really don't get too much particular joy out of any of the successes I've had in other areas. Really? Other than what they have facilitated for me to be able to do to in my stand-up. Stand. <laughs> so the thing that I love most about the radio and the television and all these sort of things is that it has driven people to come and see me do my stand-up and I've had an audience for my stand-up and it's given me an opportunity to keep improving as a stand-up. So the joy I get out of those things is purely about my stand-up. But one of the things that, because I don't like my own voice and because I don't really like looking at my own face and these sort of things, is that I have never really listened back to my stand-up and it is I am now at the point in my career where I know that if I want to continue to keep getting better at my stand-up, I need to be listening back to it and I need to... I record I yeah. record every gig that I've ever done. Yeah. And I will only listen to it like, you know, once or twice a year. I will listen to something if I've forgotten how something works or it's been a break between yeah, right. the show or, you know, some or if I, a great bit of improv comes out that yeah. night that yeah. I would never remember how to put together again, I'll go and find it. But... The idea of just every time I do a set, listening back to it and making yeah. notes and improving. Yeah. I've been doing this 23 years and I've just never done that. And I know, like, it's the funniest thing of all this, I have like all 200 performances of last year's show <laughs> in my phone right now. I could listen back to all of them. Listen I the record it every night, Mate. but I never listen. So I promised myself this year that yeah. in order to keep improving, that this would be the year that I start listening to my stand-up. I haven't done a show yet, so I can't tell you whether I'm going to do it or sure. not. But it's the attitude that I've come into this year is I'm going to force myself to go through that process and actually listen all the time. So I feel like it's going to be really confronting to me. Because that's a great theme for the year, Well, That's yeah. like, if this is your theme for the year, and you only have to do it for a year, right? and then maybe you'll like it or maybe you won't, and you don't never, to, never need to do it again. But a theme for a year, I recommend. Yeah. It was... Yeah, I don't know how I'm going to go with it. I really don't. And I'm I'm all, like even me talking, I've got nervous talking to you now about it because 
you know, it's almost like projecting that pain on. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're like, because there is a part of me that thinks it's all a house of cards as well. You know, there's a part of me that thinks <laughs> if that you while I'm up there on much. stage, you know, and I hear people laughing and it feels like everyone's having a good time, that the illusion that it's all brilliant is there. Oh, Whereas shit. if I go away and then I listen back to it, I'll be like, nah, that wasn't really going anywhere near as well as wow. I thought it was. Mate, <laughs> can I ask, do you, if you don't listen back, do you find yourself replaying whole shows in your head? Like, do you have difficulty sleeping? I I, I will replay entire shows of Calamity Jane. Right at the beginning, I re- replayed the show over and over and over because there's so much improvisation in it. There's so much audience work in it. And I would replay it over and over and over in my head until it got to like dawn and I'd gone through the whole show six times. So the only t- the only way I found to do it was to get it out, to write out the things to to watch some back and go, oh, that's not as precise as it could be. Mine, like, I mean, so the thing for me has yes. been that um, I do a lot of that. I've been doing a lot of that in my head. Yeah. But the problem is that if you're doing a lot of that in your head, what I find, particularly the two months before a new show opens, and I'm in that zone at the moment, moment. Yeah. it just becomes everything I think about whenever my brain isn't thinking about anything else. Yeah. Because you are doing it all in your head, because I haven't put it on a piece of paper, yeah. or I haven't got it in that recording and in a space where I can take it out of my head and actually put it over there. And then when I need to work on it, I could go and open up that folder and work on it because it's all up here. Yeah. Anytime that you're not distracted by something else, it yep. goes, well, why don't you just think about this? Yeah. So yes, before bed, um, when I wake up in the morning, I find that at the moment in these next two months, it mm. will be... The last thing I think about before I go to bed and the first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning will be the show or what, what the show will be. What a shit or just business a we're in. <laughs> really horrible, dead panic. And then I'll start in the run-up, I'll start having those I haven't done my homework yep. or I haven't studied for my exam uh, nightmares. Oh, my God. Terrifying, yeah. terrifying, terrifying. I had my first one the other day where I actually properly had to do a show and somebody gave me the script and the pages were blank. Right. I properly, I'd never had that one before and I was like, oh, this is ter- like, This is famous for a reason, this particular nightmare. I was like, oh, yeah, God, awful. Oh, dear. I have like a version of that one where, you know, it's everyone knows the lines in the play and it's the day of the play and yep. I've turned up and I don't know any of the no. lines. But the thing that I always find amazing about that one also is that I don't even do plays. Like, why am I having that nightmare? We are literally improvisers, you and I. <laughs> Fucking hell. What are we doing? We're idiots. Our brains are idiots. Yeah, my brain's you know, making me feel in trouble for something that I wouldn't even agree to do in the first place. <laughs> We're stupid. Oh, uh, man. I could talk to you all day, but there's some. Uh, we have to finish up and there's some important questions that I'd like to ask Great. in this podcast. So the Great. first one is, well, do you believe there is any sort of, you know, broader, bigger meaning to our lives? Meaning to our lives or yeah. life after? Well, I mean, sort of... it all kind of ties into each other. It always kind of starts with what do you think happens when we die? I yeah, suppose. right. So I think we become compost and we go into trees. Yeah. I think we, we are a collection of atoms thrown together by pure chance in a delightful genetic lottery. Uh, do I think there's any meaning to this? I think... I think the best meaning that we can is that I can find is to make other people's time here as pleasant and as fulfilling as possible and that that to me is pleasant and fulfilling. Is that crazy? Is that self-deprecating? I don't think so. I think that's like 
that's part of what I really value in life. Did you ever have a sort of a bigger belief than that? Were you raised with any religion no. or anything like that? None at all? None of that. Two atheist parents, glorious, smart people who are lovely and loving. That's it. Just love as, love people as much as you possibly can in this short time you're on earth. How did they instill that in you? Because the question that people ask, I think, you know, Mm. those who have religion um, can't quite understand those who who don't. Yeah. uh, Is that how they put their sort of, you know, life moral, let's call them moral boundaries, but, you know, just for the sake of it, um, it's probably not the right term. But, like, you know, the idea that somehow the only thing that's stopping you from stealing somebody else's stuff or coveting your neighbor's ass or, you know, like whatever, We've all done you, know, you know, thou shalt not kill, those yeah. things is because you believe that you're going to go to heaven or hell or that, yeah. you know, that God's going to punish you or, you know, the only way that you can find meaning in the universe is the idea that, you know, you were created by something or that you'll be reincarnated into something or whatever the various people believe yeah. that gives their life meaning. So how do you, if you believe as... I do, you know, random accident corner of the universe, mm. most likely explanation. Yes. Then I guess the bigger question that comes out of that for me always is, then why this? Yeah, right. Why are we doing this? Why is conversation important? Why is, you know, this quiche that you've brought <laughs> going to be a thing? Why did you bother bringing that in the first yeah. place? Why am I going to sit there and enjoy it later? Why did people invent quiche in the first place? What That's, was the point of quiche? That is the real question that we have come here to answer yeah, today. Exactly. Well, Anderson, why quiche? <laughs> Finally. Why quiche? I've been wanting to ask it for so long, but it never had come up until I'm today. I'm so honoured. It's yeah. me. Um, I, I can only tell you that I have felt immediate positive gain in my life when I treat people with respect and compassion and when I front foot generosity and enthusiasm. I can just tell you that my body feels right and I see the effect that it has on people and I see the way that the world works then and I think that's the on that's that's the only way I want it to be. I can I just tell you I get a I get a I don't think cosmic. I think some sort of, I think serotonin, dopamine release that goes, this is right. That's it. What, uh, what are your fears? Uh, do, you fear, do you fear death? Like, uh, I mean, the, 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 I guess that's a different question in mm. some ways to the idea of what you think happens. Like, is the idea of death something that you sort of think about or that, you know, you have a list of things you'd like to do before you know, you died. Is it something that, you know, you feel looking over your shoulder ever? I feel um, I've used this phrase, we got one life, what are you going to do with it? I feel I have used that to push my own boundaries, to take leaps, to go into things that I would not necessarily have done if I had felt more complacent in the world. So I think it's a very useful um, stick somehow. I... I've had some experiences of death in my life. I know that my entire experience of death and what it means will change when my parents get sick. I know that. And I am not prepared for that at all. That's that's just something that I know is going to be a part of my life where I'm like, I, can't, I, I was not ready for this. That's too serious to me. So I try and live uh, with it as a as a theoretical concept, which helps me get things done (laughs) and not as a literal, awful loss. Do you uh, have other fears 
What would if you know if I if I was asking you what your fears were, hmm. what would you say? Ah, uh, Christ! I fear, like probably, like you do. I fear the very specific feeling of delivering something that you thought was great and being met with like a thousand non-smiling faces. <laughs> No joke, like that's actually something where I'm like, that's a really yeah. bad feeling. But I got to tell you that I did um, I did a three day clowning course once with Dr. Brown. Do you remember Dr. Yeah, Brown? I know yeah. Dr. Brown. So fabulous, a brilliant uh, performer. Uh, uh, still have a slight bit of resentment because uh, yeah, one of the years I got nominated for the Barry at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. I he was beaten it. by Dr. <laughs> Brown. So Dr. Barry, as we call him, yeah. what a bastard. No, but a, a, a great guy and a brilliant performer. Great guy, and so he was started. He was part of the beginning of this idea of um, what part of the be, part of the resurgence of how clowning seeped over into stand-up, yeah. right? Especially at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and the Edinburgh Comedy Festival and things. So I did a course with him and it was basically um, the great clowning traditions, Lecoq and Gaudier, these French clowns. And part of their thing is you got to sit in the shit. you got to sit in failure. And once you're okay with sitting in failure, then nothing else will ever be scary again. From there... Any idea can come to you. But if you're always working from fear of what will happen if this fails, then you then nothing blossoms. Then you're always um, working against something. So there was this whole – and it was so hard for me and hard for all of us in this course. But it was properly practice changing and I suppose life changing too. That once you've sat in failure and had no ideas and everybody has laughed at you for having nothing, you go – Okay, well, no boundaries now. What shall I do? What can I offer? Oh, this. Oh, you like this? I would never have thought to go here, but let's go here. It's 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 such a great piece of advice, and it's one that I wish that I had learnt earlier in my career because you eventually have to learn it. You do. Like you you don't keep growing unless you learn it. Yeah. Like you eventually learn that failure is actually the quickest way to get better, and it's the only way to get truly better. Yep. Um, and that if you are going along without failures, particularly as a stand-up when you first start out, if everything keeps going fine then you're probably not learning as quickly as you can because yeah. you're not taking the necessary risks yeah. to really learn who you are and who you are as a performer. And I say it to people all the time now. I say, if you really want a quick fix, fail as often as you can, mm-hmm. as quickly as you can. Take as many risks as you can. Learn to embrace failure. Yeah, I do these improvised stand-up shows now yes. and I used to start them with, you know, I'd have a few ideas or a few go-tos or whatever. Yeah. And when I really learned how to do them was it was that moment where I decided I would go out with nothing at all and I would embrace the idea that failure would be part of the show and part of the yes. process. Yes. You know, that there would be moments within the show where I would have dug myself a hole and then the joy would be seeing myself digging myself out of the hole. Yep. And the minute that you embrace that, then... In fact, if anything, it doesn't happen anywhere near as much as it probably would be fun for it to happen. Exactly. You know, because you've embraced the idea that it would be good for it to happen. Totally. It kind of actually stops that yeah. from happening. It stops because, the fear from, yeah. being, from working underneath that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, I, I love that. Okay. So tell me this then. Yes. Uh, regrets. Is there anything that you wish you had your time over? 
on? Or, or are you a person who thinks, well, everything that, you know, has happened has brought me to who I am now, therefore I wouldn't change it? Or are you a person who says, okay, if a genie comes down today and gives you a, a do-over for one thing that you'd take a do-over? Yeah, right. I reckon there are a couple of things in my life that I would choose to have not done if I had my time again. But my general feeling uh, that I want for my deathbed is I'd rather regret the things that I had done than the things I hadn't. So I'm going to LA in uh, in a couple of weeks and I'm going to be there for a while. I know you did this too in your life. And I know it's late and I know it's might be insane and it feels so weird to start again but I'd fucking much rather have done it and failed maybe than not have done it at all it kind of feels like also though that sometimes sometimes what you think is the thing that you know like the idea that you're saying it's late or yeah yeah no maybe it's time. Maybe it's the perfect time. You know? Totally. Like, it feels like you're at a place in your career where you understand what it is that you do and you do well. Yes. But it also feels like that, you know, I mean, it, it, very much in the in the same way as it would have been, you know, for, for a whole range of people, is like there is a certain sort of, you know young like you said the 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 juliet role the yes. cinderella role you yes. know the that role yes but there is only a limited lifespan on that role and what that is and That's then there true. are you know there is now hopefully becoming all these much more interesting yeah. roles the world has changed people are oh. looking for different things Absolutely you know right. it might be that perfect time where your skill set and your position in life yeah. and your capacity to understand what it is you know yeah. you've done other things you're not going over there as a 20-year-old with your, you know, exactly. straight off home and away with, you know, <laughs> your, your suitcase and hoping that it'll all work out. Yeah, you my know. hair extensions. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, so it's it, – but what will you do when you are over there? Will you just throw yourself into, you know, seeing what's out there for you? Will you work? I'm always interested in this. Like, yeah. as in, like, do you think that you will go over there and – get a job or yeah. will you just go over there and work professionally like in the arts yeah totally so I um, my main aim is to go over there and to audition obviously that's the thing but I also I want to write I have a couple of projects that I properly I I think about this again I'm trying to frame it positively I go I would never have the time I would literally what an amazing opportunity to look at these months and months where potentially nothing will happen where I get to set my schedule every day what a thrill for having done years and years of television when you are literally told when you have long enough to shit. Yep. You know, like, <laughs> you know, this is your 10 minute break. Go now. Okay, thank you. I'm so sorry. You know, now I could go, all right, this is, this is my day. Spend all day shitting if you want to. <laughs> well, if you're wow. spending all day shitting, then <laughs> look at your diet. Yeah, yeah you're right. Whole, the American food probably isn't <laughs> agreeing with this system. Maybe cut down on some cheese. Oh, that would be my suggestion. <laughs> but yeah, there is that thing, right? Of going uh, sometimes, you know, time. It's very hard to carve out that yeah that time yeah and to have that space in your life. Like I always. Uh, I have a pile of books at home and I have a pile of writing to do that yeah. I always assume is my backup plan when I get fired next. <laughs> like that, <laughs> I always look at the pile of books and I go, well, I'll have time to read those. When what a I, thrill. Yeah. What a great opportunity. <laughs> I can't, I'm really looking forward to reading that book when my career falls to shit. <laughs> 
got a positive spin that I really think keeps us upbeat, <laughs> keeps us buoyant. Um, uh, you spoke about, you know, sort of your 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 funeral, you know, deathbed, that idea mm. of like, you know, you're not regretting, uh, yeah. you know, uh, you'd rather regret something you did than, yeah. than uh, things that you didn't do. Yeah. Are there things that, can I ask this, mm. are there things that um, you feel like you did miss out on? You know, that you are now at a point like, I mean, I would have loved to, this, yeah. here's a really practical example. Yeah. I would have loved to learn how to surf. I oh, always right. regret that I never learned how to surf. I love the beach. I've lived near the beach a lot in my life. Maybe when you become the bionic man and have Well, maybe when I get hits. my hip replacement, yeah, 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 I can totally. learn how to surf. Yeah. But it, pro- it probably feels like one of those things that I am now beyond the point that I will ever learn how to surf. Yeah, Is right. there anything that you feel like you, you missed out on doing or learning or wanting to do that you probably you, can't it, do? There are a couple of things that actually, like I've always wanted to learn to dance. I've wanted to learn to do all of your dances. I want to learn swing dance. I want to, I want to tap dance. I want to like line dance, samba. Um, Lombarda, the forbidden dance. (laughs) Truly the sexiest of all the dances. Um, And I'm thinking, yeah, maybe this is, I don't think, I think it's an insane time to learn, but I also think maybe in this next couple of years, maybe that's what I do. Maybe every night I take a class somewhere different in LA. Um, But I will tell you that every single role that I've missed out on or every single opportunity that I've missed out on, I've hurt for like, anywhere between three days and sometimes for the really big ones, three weeks. And then I almost never think about them again. Like I, that's not the thing that keeps me awake at night. What would my life have been like that if, if that had happened? What would I have done with that? Sometimes I get a little shard of jealousy and I work every day to not let that shard get deeper and deeper and more and more postular in my soul. You're the best. You know you're that. the best. I love you. I think you're just um, absolutely fantastic. I always Smart. have. And uh, it's been a pleasure to sit down and talk to you. Yeah, um, good luck in LA. Now, Calamity Thanks, Jane, yes. uh, still on at the Comedy Theatre until what, February the 4th? February the 3rd, we Third. play. Okay, don't go on the 4th. Don't go on the 4th. <laughs> do not go on the 4th. I will do a personal show from the gutter from you with my hangover of the century. Uh, give it a. I'll give it a plug at the start so that, you know, if Thanks, people don't man. make it all the way through. <laughs> I always worry about that. But... Um, but tell me, uh, t- give, you give it a plug now. Tell people you know, what the show is at its heart and you know why they should come and see it. So it's the musical that you know, Doris Day's musical, about a real-life person, 1860s Calamity Jane, who was a woman who wore men's clothing, who refused to live by society's standards, who by all, uh, all examples fell in love with a woman, fell in love with a man, who is the heroine that we need right now. She, at the end of the musical, rides off to save the day and fix what is wrong in the world. She is everything to me and I love her with my whole heart. The musical itself, as we've made it, is immersive, it's incredibly funny, it's irreverent and it's loving. There you go. That's a good one, Virginia Gay, thank you very much. Thanks.